When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm sure going to the state finals is beyond your wildest dreams, so let's just keep it right there. Forget about the crowds, the size of the school, their fancy uniforms. If you have ever seen the movie Hoosiers starring Gene Hackman, then you may recall scenes of 1940s and 50s automobiles full of the citizens of Hickory, Indiana as they convoyed behind a school bus. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. And most important... The bus carried the local high school boys' basketball team as they pulled out of their tiny agricultural town and headed to an away game. To me, those images of a whole Midwestern community parading faithfully behind their team smacked of Hollywood embellishment or an attempt to bring a Norman Rockwell painting to life. The lazy Chryslers and Chevrolets, Lincolns and Oldsmobiles with their beautiful and swift clean lines, bulging hoods and rounded headlights, were occupied by townsfolk and parents and siblings of the players, all dressed in that delightful clothing of the era. The women wore woolen plaid pleated skirts, sweetheart blouses and kerchief scarves, and the men tweed slacks or bib overalls. And those young basketball players, clean-cut and all-American looking, worked on their family farm on Saturdays, went to church on Sundays, and for the most part, respected their elders, and were polite, civil, and well-behaved. I wondered, was this depiction of a charming community and their devotion and loyalty to their local high school basketball team just a screenwriter's attempt to glorify the era, or was there maybe some truth to it? I wouldn't know. Although I live in the upper Midwest today, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s in California. And sure, small West Coast towns support their local teams too, but... I had a suspicion that basketball in the upper Midwest is in a league all of its own. Was basketball really that big a deal back in the 40s and 50s? I decided that the first place for this podcast to start was to try to find out. You know, it was a long, hard winter, and high school basketball was the only thing in town, the only game in town. This is the 1953 beach team, the Buccaneers, entrant in the state class B 1953 tourney, being held at Minor. No, and the goal in life was to play in the state tournament. That's no good. Rebound is pulled down by to 
Coming to you from the vast and windy, wide-open plains of North Dakota, this is the Dakota Ball Podcast, an explorative journey into small-town living and Midwestern dreams of big-time high school basketball. The Glen Ole and Hebron girls basketball team entered the season needing to replace four of its top six players. Glen Ole and Hebron, the champions of Region 7 and State for the first time, they are the true Cinderella story of this tournament. Hello and welcome to this first episode of the Dakota Ball Podcast. I'm your host, James Wallner. I'm speaking to you today from the town of Hebron, population 900 or so, in the western part of the state of North Dakota. This podcast will bring you real people and their real stories from small towns in the upper Midwestern United States, a place where local high school athletics seems to be ingrained into the fiber of the people and of the community. Although I've lived in this area for less than four years, I recently experienced a taste of that Hoosier-esque feeling myself. Last year, our own local high school girls basketball team, the Glen Ullen slash Hebron Lady Bearcats, earned their first berth at the state tournament. I can't be certain, but I think maybe I caught a glimpse of some of that spirit and loyalty that the movie Hoosiers attempted to portray. Is it possible that the marrow of that spirit from the 1950s is still swimming around the bloodstream of today's athletes, coaches, and fans? For the 2017-18 basketball season, this podcast will follow the local Bearcat basketball squads, their regional opponents, and also other small-town teams and players, communities, and coaches, as they all compete throughout the Dakotas to answer that one single question. Who will get to state this year? And through interviews and storytelling, I'm hoping to find answers to some other questions, too. I'd like to understand better just who we are in these small communities. Why do so many of us spend time and energy and money following and supporting a local high school team? What motivates coaches and athletes and, for that matter, why do some people, such as myself, abandon the big city areas and move to a small remote town, while others do the exact opposite? In other words, both on and off the courts, who are we and what's this all about? To try to understand what high school basketball was really like in the 40s and 50s, I've interviewed people who experienced it firsthand themselves. In fact, I recently had the opportunity to interview the creator and producer of the movie Hoosiers himself, screenwriter Angelo Piso. Look for that interview in an up-and-coming episode. For this first episode, I spoke with a few people who grew up in small towns at a time when basketball dominated a huge part of their lives. So, Starting out with my own father and some of his childhood friends and teammates, let's get started. Welcome to Episode 1, Starving on the Court. My name is Jim Walner, Curtin, South Dakota. I was born in 1938. I was very lucky to sort of mature into the era where local high school basketball was so phenomenally uh, fascinating to people all over the state. And um, I was lucky because I matured kind of early and I was sort of tall. Um, my name is Tom Barry. Uh, I was born in 1939 in January. We had a good team because your dad was, well, he was, I don't know, six foot four, I think, in the eighth grade. <laughs> I mean, that's unheard of. <laughs> Maybe today, but not in those days. So I became quite effective as a basketball player pretty early. I, in fact, I played in the small town I grew up in. Uh, on the varsity team as an eighth grader. The town my dad grew up in is called Turton in eastern South Dakota. 
You will hear him and others I interviewed for this first episode refer to Turton and two other towns named Doland and Condee. The three towns lie in a perfect little vertical line along Highway 37 in Spink County, South Dakota, with Condee at the top and then approximately 10 miles south, Turton, and about 12 miles south of that, Doland. In the 40s and 50s, they were all hustling agricultural towns where on Saturday nights the main street was crowded and busy with automobiles and people and the excitement of going to the movies and meeting up with friends. Condee, Turton, and Doland are typical examples of small towns on the plains. Not only as they exist today, now that population has dwindled and schools have been consolidated, but also as they existed in the past. Basketball in the Dakotas, I think possibly starting in the 40s, but or late 40s, but certainly in the 50s and on to into the 60s and maybe the 70s, but certainly in the 50s as a sport, high school basketball was absolutely king. The only other sport that competed with it, oddly enough, was professional baseball. People had their, you know, their favorite teams like the Yankees or this before the Twins and so on, but the Yankees, Dodgers, whatever. And then also college football, oddly enough, is a big, big deal. And I would argue that besides college football and professional baseball, high school basketball was king. I'm uh, James Berry, and I was born in... uh... Turton, South Dakota, probably in the Condé Clinic, and uh, born 1936, May. Well, I think basketball in those days was, was a big deal. Uh, there were districts and uh, regionals, and then you go to the state tournament. I could count about seven, eight towns close by here that was in the little gym conference that we played basketball with. And the whole thing in these states, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, probably Montana and so on, was how the teams did in their tournaments. And the, and the goal in life was to get to the state tournament, is to play in the state tournament. So did, people really did that? They convoyed behind the bus and stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And not only that, oftentimes they went to see other teams. I, I can remember when I played there in Condee, I was surprised to see people coming to our game who were neither from the team that we played nor from Condi. And they they would come to see the the game, you know. Breaks that, and it's 22 to 21, Beach leading. Lisbon taking the ball across. Number 21 with the ball. And 14 takes it across very fast, trying in Dallas Cop and loses it. Loses it completely. Through the season, you know, there was this. There were certain towns that had dominant teams and uh, <clears throat> were seen destined to play in the state tournament. And a, a good example was Dolan here, near where I lived, uh-huh. where they were number one in the rank in the state. I must say, nineteen fifty, um, and they had a terrific team. They were not undefeated, I don't think, but they were almost. And they were ranked number one. Well, they got into a so-called regional tournament and they got beat. And I can remember my dad saying that the whole town of Dolan was just devastated. They were absolutely devastated. Just a quick note. For those of you listening who may not be familiar with all this, you will be hearing a lot of references to Class A and Class B basketball and state tournaments. 
In a nutshell, the A class refers to the bigger enrollment schools in bigger towns, while the B class refers to everyone else in all the small towns. You might think that because the Class A schools are bigger, there would be more excitement and interest in Class A basketball, but as we'll see, it was apparently quite the opposite. It was in Class B basketball, in all of those many small towns, that all the real excitement was found. To confuse the matter, sometimes the younger squad in a school, what we today call the junior varsity, was often called the school's B team. This has nothing to do with Class A or Class B basketball. A Class A team might have a B team, but that just means it was their junior varsity. I hope that makes sense, although I admit it is a little confusing. My name is Jerry Birch, uh, and, and at the present time, I live in Rosemont, Minnesota. Uh, I went to Condi High School, you know, and I graduated in 1956. My wife and I both graduated from Condi. We had six kids, and uh, they were all involved in sports, still are, with our grandkids, and, and uh, sports has been an important part of our life forever. Um, you know, the winter months, you needed something to occupy your time. You know, it was a long, hard winter, and high school basketball was the only thing in town, the only game in town, and, and it didn't matter whether you were from Condi or Curtin or any other little town around, it was the same thing. And they had just a tremendous amount of pride for their, for their teams, no matter how good or poor they were. I remember my, remember my first game ever in high school. Well, I wasn't in high school. I was in uh, sixth or seventh grade. I can't remember for sure. And I got to dress with the varsity. And, you know, I hadn't played a bas- in a, a basketball game at that point in time. I had done some practicing, but never in a game. And I can remember the uh, the excitement of it. And I got on the floor and I didn't know one end of the floor from the other, but I felt the excitement that everybody else was feeling. So let me ask you, Jerry, real quick, uh, from your perspective, where you are now in your life and your history of basketball and teaching and everything else growing up in a small town, do you have any words of encouragement or uh, inspiration, warning, anything like that for our, um, the Glen Ellen, Hebron, uh, Lady Bearcats basketball team? Well, well, one of the things that, that I have found in my own personal experience with, with my playing and with my own own kids playing and my grandkids playing was you know you can you can become so um focused on basketball or the sport that you're forgetting that there's a whole bigger world going on around you that's much much more important that's fun time let it be fun time don't make it your life and too often today i think you know we did then, kids do it now, and they probably will forever think that, that sport, and basketball in particular, is the most important thing in their life. But if they can get past that a little bit and look at a bigger picture, they're going to be happier with everything they do, just everything. Guard, but she really can get up in the air. Coach says the ball to Tucker, number 10, to Hedden's number 20, to Tucker. To Coach underneath, Debbie Coach, bank shot. The public television networks in both North Dakota and South Dakota have produced documentaries about this very subject. Here in North Dakota, in 2001, Prairie Public Broadcasting created a documentary titled One Shining Moment, The History of North Dakota State B. South Dakota Public Broadcasting made a similar film titled Kings of the Court, 
a history of boys basketball in South Dakota. A lot of the audio in this episode of the Dakota Ball Podcast is courtesy of Prairie Public Broadcasting and South Dakota Public Broadcasting. The 1950s have been referred to as the golden age of basketball in South Dakota, and attendance at the state tournaments reflected that. Well, they used to talk about the Big B and then the A tournament, and those two tournaments uh, were kind of the, you know, the end of winter. It was kind of the climax of the winter activity, so it was a big thing, I think, socially across the state as well. The B tournament was probably the jewel crown of all of them. You need the lottery ticket to get in. Life was pretty... Uh, it wasn't as exciting as it is today, but it sure seemed that way for us. Those were the voices of Bob Swanhorst of the Crestbard class of 1957 and Dave Strain of the White River class of 1949. Oh, and you might recognize the next voice of that of NBC Nightly News editor Tom Brokaw. Brokaw grew up in South Dakota during this era, too, and apparently he was a big basketball fan. If you were a sports fan, this was the biggest thing in our lives. It was the biggest arena that I think we had in South Dakota at that time. So it was a big deal. And uh, a mother of a friend of mine drove us up there because Ravinia from our conference was playing in it. And we saw Oneida beat Ravinia and the Hall brothers. Uh, one and a push shot in and out by Youngberg. Not good. Followed by Hyde. It's good. Kent Hyde gets his... But regardless of how good the all-important morning meal, it can't possibly supply all the nutriment required for an entire day. During my interviews, both my dad and Jim Barry had some interesting memories about nutrition back in the day. Food that's good for us. Certain foods are essential. We must have them daily for the sake of health. Well, I, I argue that I would have probably been a lot better basketball player if they wouldn't have had these silly restrictions about what we know today as carbs. And uh, starting way, like in the seventh grade, I remember, well, now don't eat anything but a poached egg and a piece of toast before the game. I'm not kidding. That was the, that was the thing. Well, then also they sort of uh, warned against drinking too much water. Well, I, I think now, I bet I played a lot of games where I was absolutely starved for car, uh, calories and then probably dehydrated. I'm not kidding. We ended up playing two games in one day, and the second game everybody's falling down on the floor with cramps, and we had a good team. We should have won the tournament, and the guys were just sitting down, cramped up. Two games in one day, yeah, yeah, probably not enough water. Gatorade hadn't been invented yet, I'll tell you that. Um, there was, you know, the idea that you'd eat a bunch of potatoes or spaghetti or something for a game was unheard of. Well, I'll bet you anything. Many, I could have, and probably everybody else could have played much better or much more vigorously if we'd have had more carbohydrates in our system. So I believe that firmly. But yeah, a poach, you're supposed to have a poached egg and a piece of toast, and that was it. And I can remember going to games just being starved, you know. Here's the $3.50 edition of Betty Crocker's Picture Cookbook with 463 pages of Betty Crocker recipes and pictures. And this is the true heat... So what's... Uh... What, what's the closest you got to getting in the state tournament? Well, we played in the regional tournament twice down in Huron, and we you know we just got beat. That was it. We just couldn't quite do it. But mm. I do remember. See, we played. You know, here the Huron Arena was this huge arena, 
you know, with glass backboards out there in the middle of nowhere, so to speak, you know. Mm. And man, I just couldn't get a feel for the the space of anything. But again, the whole thing, the whole meaning in life was to get to the state tournament. You know, that was the whole object, you see. Excellent host, the people of Durham, and uh, certainly the most wonderful facilities that you could find at a state tournament. It had been over 30 years since Huron hosted a state tournament until 1953, when the Huron Arena opened and brought the State B tournament back to the Fair City. Well, the tournament was kind of going, went from Sioux Falls to Mitchell to Aberdeen. And That's Bob Swanhorst again. And, and then Huron came along and really stepped out and built something that, it seemed to me it was whole 10,000, but I think it only held about six to eight someplace in there. Condi had probably the nicest gymnasium of any place within a 40-mile radius of us. And, and, and so, you know, we were used to playing pretty good, to pretty good-sized crowds. But then you went to the Huron Arena, and, you know, that's, that, that's a big arena as far as we're concerned. A whole different look at the game, feel of the game. You know, the, the stadium is bigger. You know, it was it, it just plain excitement, and we didn't win the game. We didn't play particularly well, but I think we can all remember probably most everything we did during that game. <laughs> you know? Glass backboards were completely different for all of us at that time. We didn't have them in Condi. You know, the, the big arenas like in Huron did have, and it made a big difference in the in the per shooting perspective. You know, so it affected our game, but. Uh, you know, it shouldn't have affected us any more than it did for any other team that we played, but it did. 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. In order to keep his body between the defensive man and the ball, the player shoots with his outside hand. When the play carries the man very close to the basket, he crosses over and lays the ball back up on the backboard with the opposite hand. Did you have a favorite shot or a pack, what we call it, like your own Jim Walner shot or anything like that? Well, the jump shot, so to speak, was just coming into four. When I played as a freshman, I remember my uncle, who was sort of a sports fan, said, Jim, you better develop a jump shot. And I said, I am, I am, which was true. But I had, well, since I had to play sort of center with my back to the basket, they taught me to do this pivot where you sort of, you got the ball and then you pivoted around, you know, which was okay. I was pretty good at that actually for a while. I mean, but then later on, it was more like a jump shot, you know, routine for us. We didn't, uh, the jump shot was just sort of becoming sort of the shot of the day when I was like a freshman. The 1949 Class B title would go to the Miller Rustlers, who finished the season with a perfect record of 29-0. Well, what I understand, we're ahead of their time. That's Jeff Wilbur of the Miller, South Dakota Class of 72. Terry Zimmerman was one of the first, guy, first guys, if not the first guy, to uh, shoot a jump shot. They mostly did the set shots, and so putting the ball up over the top of your head and and jumping up there and shooting them, talk about a revolutionary idea. That was also the first year the White River earned a berth. I probably told you before, but one time I scored 38 points in a game and I wasn't even the high point man on our team. We won the game 108 to something or other. When we went into the locker room, the coach said to me, Jim, you were 
you scored 38 points and you weren't even hyping. <laughs> so I do remember that, and we all kind of laughed about it. Garrison Troopers born 1953, coached by Al Keck, the players Ernie Taylor, Lee Robinson, Buck Keck, Robert Fisher, Pearl Keyes, Ben Hummel, Dennis Thompson, Harold Haven. We did that tournament in Frankfurt where Dolan tried to, thought they could win the game by stalling. So this was back before the shot clock when you had... You, so how, when you say stall, it's just so people who might be listening might not understand what that means. They're basically just... They're passing the ball back and forth at midcourt. Nobody comes out and challenges. That must have been a little bit boring for the spectators. It wasn't only the spectators. There was one dad, even Dolan's dad's parents didn't like it. He said, this is not what kids should be do- learning how to do. And he actually pulled his kid off the floor. You know. He did? Yeah, he just went down to the bench and he said, you know, you're not playing on this team. And he took him off. You know. Talk about tournaments that year that we all got snowed in in Condé. You know, the weather's starting to warm up, but then, uh, and then the condition is just such a heavy, heavy snowfall. Yeah. Yep. We got all stranded Gandhi. All the teams were there, and all the players, and yeah, there was there were snowbanks higher in the car. Yeah, we took off from Gandhi Fountain. It's about six, seven o'clock at night. Of course, it's pitch black that time of year. Following snow plow south from Gandhi. Two hours later, we got one mile south. Stayed, went to somebody's house to get all warmed up. Managed to get our cars turned around, which was. A challenge in itself, just to get cars turned around, and went back to Condi about two hours in a blizzard. <laughs> blizzard, blowing snow, jeez. And uh, the story goes that some guys played basketball all. They slept on the bleachers, but they played basketball all night long. The local community, Condi, just took them into their homes and treated them as if they were family. And uh, it was a very memorable kind of occasion. You know, it, it was a it was a happy time even though it was a difficult time for everybody involved. But it was it was just a happy time. And I think the next day we managed to, me and Dad, and we went west six miles and south and back here, and there was hardly any snow here. Oh, you drove? I don't yeah. remember that part of it. No, I stayed in Gandhi. Had to come home and milk the cows. Cows don't wait. <laughs> Hello, sport fans. This is Bill Riley, your state tournament public address announcer for the past three years. It is my pleasure on behalf of the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union to bring you the official motion picture. Late at night, they turn on the radio, and Iowa Girls Basketball would be on, which to me was just, I couldn't figure that out. There was the um, old-fashioned girls basketball. Yeah, they were, they were broadcasting Iowa girls basketball. And uh, it was just absolutely phenomenal. And um, I do remember that, thinking, God, you know, uh, just think you have your game on the radio, you know. Sport-loving fans filled the field house beyond capacity. The total attendance for the entire tournament, over 40,000 people. On hand to bring a play-by-play account of this all important. Hey everybody, we'll get right back to the story here in a sec, but all this talk about Iowa girls basketball is a great place to stop and give you a sneak peek of our next episode of the Dakota Ball podcast, when we'll meet Angelo Pizzo, the man behind the movie Hoosiers, and we'll take a closer look 
at what an underdog is and why we like them. My name is Angelo Pizzo. Uh, I'm a filmmaker. I wrote and produced Hoosiers and Rudy, and I wrote and directed My All American. My name is Jason Kowalczyk, and I got my start by working on research in sports psychology. I'm finishing one a script up now, and the next script I write after that is a story of a high school basketball team in 1957 in the state of Iowa. And why is it different than Hoosiers? Women's basketball, right? It's girls' basketball. That's exactly right. Basically, the idea for an underdog is that they're just disadvantaged in some way in some kind of competition. And I was wondering if the creator of the movie Hoosiers has any words of wisdom, encouragement, or anything else you might want to offer to our own local Lady Bearcats up here in North Dakota. I would say, let me answer the question in a number of different ways. The most effective thing a coach can do is to create... Look for those interviews and more in our next episode of the Dakota Ball Podcast. Now, let's get back to our stories because I want to tell you about an interesting little find I made in my own home this weekend that's related to the 1953 Boys State B Tournament in South Dakota. While I was editing this first episode of the podcast and listening again to Tom Brokaw and my dad and others as they described their childhood memories, I realized a few things. And really, that's what I'm hoping this podcast will keep doing. I hope it will bring new understanding and awareness to things that I've either never known or at least never appreciated before. With just this first episode, I've learned quite a bit. I've learned a lot about the history of basketball in the Dakotas, and I've seen people's eyes light up when I've asked about memories of basketball in small towns. But partially by accident, I also realized something else. When Tom Brokaw was describing the Huron Arena, that arena that my dad and his teammates found so intimidating in regional play, he recounted a trip there to the 1953 state tournament. In fact, let's listen again. It was the biggest arena that I think we had in South Dakota at that time, so it was a big deal. And uh, a mother of a friend of mine drove us up there because Ravinia from our conference was playing in it, and we saw Oneida beat Ravinia and the Hall brothers. Oneida beat Ravinia in the finals of that 1953 state tournament. Tom Brokaw's trip to Huron and that championship game had such an impression on him that he chose to share that memory decades later during the making of the documentary Kings of the Court. Then yesterday, kind of by accident, I found, or perhaps I should say, I rediscovered something in my home that I'd forgotten all about. And suddenly I realized that I know of someone else, someone besides Tom Brokaw, who was in the stands at that game so long ago. Somewhere, sitting in the crowd at that great big Huron Arena on Saturday night, March 14th, 1953, my dad was sitting there, following the action too. In fact, not just somewhere. I know exactly where. He was in Section N, Row K, Seat 5. 
seconds to go, first quarter, and it's 20 to 9. Out in front, Christmasson. In my home, there's a little glass case. It's a box, really, or a key cabinet to hang keys on with a glass door on it. Inside, there are various objects that I've placed there over the years. Photos of my daughters, some old concert tickets, pictures of my mom and sisters, and things like that. I guess you could say it's a little glass case which represents to me, to use Tom Brokaw's words, the biggest things in my life. And also in that case is a three-day pass to the 1953 South Dakota State B Tournament in Huron, South Dakota. I've forgotten now if my dad or my grandma gave me that memento, or if I found it in my grandparents' house and just adopted it myself. I don't remember when I got it, and I don't remember putting it in that case. Yesterday, as I was listening again to Tom Brokaw, I simply looked to my right and I noticed that three-day ticket hanging on a key hook in that glass case. I didn't remember what year was stamped on it or anything like that, but I took a look, and sure enough, before I knew it, I was holding a ticket to that same game that Mr. Brokaw was just talking about. The ticket has five holes punched into it, certainly made when my dad entered or re-entered the arena that weekend. It cost $5 for a three-day pass in 1953, and the ticket itself is made of some kind of sturdy board. I don't even want to call it cardboard. It's some material that we don't see anymore. It's incredibly strong and rigid. Which also makes me wonder, with today's flimsy paper tickets and electronic tickets, what will the children or grandchildren of our own Glen Ullen Hebron Lady Bearcats be holding in their hands six decades from now? What memory will they have to celebrate Mom or Grandma's great run at the state tournament way back in 2017? I began this first episode by questioning the accuracy of the movie Hoosiers. I now have little doubt that the movie is accurate at the very least in its portrayal of the importance and excitement that basketball brought to small communities. I have no lasting suspicions that the movie was nostalgic nonsense. Now, here I am, near the end of this first episode, looking at this 64-year-old three-day pass, and I'm suddenly faced with the thought that perhaps I'm the nostalgic element in all of this. A part of me wonders, why have I held on to this ticket and kept it in my little glass case for all this time? If it's for nostalgic reasons, then what is it that I'm being nostalgic about? I was never at that tournament, after all. My dad had that ticket in his pocket for three days in March of 1953. I can somehow imagine him riding home to Turton, South Dakota, from here on that Saturday night. I picture him, 14 years old, looking through the window in the backseat of a rattling car, exhilarated and tired all at once after watching three days of basketball in the biggest arena in the state. On that evening, he had practically his whole life ahead of him. I'm sure, at age 14, as he looked out the window into the Dakota night, he had no thoughts of marriage yet, or that he might someday have two daughters, or that his son might be holding that same ticket all these years later. Six grandchildren was certainly the furthest thing from his mind, as was college, or a life in California, or for that matter, retirement. Maybe the reason I have that ticket still to this day has nothing to do with basketball. Maybe it's because it represents a time in my father's life that I never got to see, but which I think is so important to know that all parents once had. In that moment, 
Way before he was faced with the responsibilities and burdens of parenting and adulthood, he was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. It's what all teenagers are supposed to do, and it's something that adults and parents and teachers should always encourage. Regardless whether they are athletes or non-athletes, young women or men, whether left-handed or right-handed, teenagers should dream, and they should keep on dreaming, and they should always dream big. In my dad's case, on that Saturday evening, nodding off in the back seat with his forehead against the window and his three-day ticket tucked into his pocket, he was certainly dreaming that Midwestern dream of someday, somehow, getting to state. Special thanks to the following for graciously allowing me to use their audio. KFYR-TV, Bismarck, North Dakota. WDAY-TV, Fargo, North Dakota. Prairie Public Broadcasting in North Dakota. And South Dakota Public Broadcasting. The podcast email is dakotaballpodcast at gmail.com. That's dakotaballpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep dreaming. Don't stop believing, walk tall, and please be safe.